Welcome to episode 325 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. One of my greatest joys over the last few years has been attracting wonderful people into my life, being able to support their big dreams as a virtual event design consultant and executive Zoom producer. Today's guest happens to also be an event client who discovered me through a Google search, like what she saw on my website, and we're getting ready to produce a third virtual convening this spring. Her vision was to build an anti-racist community that grew and learned together. It's been a privilege to help her do that. If you have big dreams, I encourage you to learn the strategies in my latest book, Break Out of Boredom, Low-Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events. I share the latest features and online facilitation techniques that will help you design a transformative, inclusive, and engaging online experience. You can buy the book and get all the bonus content at breakoutofboredom.com. That's breakoutofboredom.com. Now, Onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a dynamic leader and social justice advocate. She's a highly sought after social justice thought partner recognized for her passion, activism, and unapologetic talk around anti-racist community building and healing. With a diverse background spanning industries like college administration, media, public relations, government service, television, radio production, and entrepreneurship, her work has touched countless lives locally, nationally, and internationally in Ghana and South Africa specifically. Melanie is the creator and executive producer of both the People's Gathering, a Revolution of Consciousness Conference, and the People's Golf Gathering, Out of Bounds Conversations About Race, both professional development learning experiences that focus participants on anti-racist skill building. In 2018, she was awarded the Greater Tacoma Peace Prize for Lifetime Achievements in Racial Reconciliation her documentary about her trip to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, Peace Queen, won a 2021 National Academy of Television Arts and Science Northwest Emmy. Wow, please join me welcoming Peace Queen herself, Melanie Denise Cunningham. Welcome. Hi! Boy! Thrilled that you're here. Uh, so a little backstory. You and I have been working together on one of your events that we just mentioned, which is how we cross paths. I've been hosting this show. It's about building strong networks and relationship building and leadership. You're all about these things. So let's kick this off. How do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Whoa. Okay. So that's tough. When I think about leadership, I'm thinking about followership, if that makes sense. Like, who's following me? Okay, or or even who wants to follow me. And so I need to uh, be be in uh, purpose about how I'm living so that I can create opportunities, right? Manifest them that people want to be a part of. And then I turn around and people are following me. I mean, it's it's just that. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think what you're saying is that you're constantly trying to create the uh, the 
the possibilities that would draw people to you by living like you're living that truth. And then people who are attracted to that, that they follow you. And that's how suddenly you're like, I'm a leader. Oh, look at that. I'm a leader. <laughs> oh yeah. How about that? <laughs> when did you start to realize you had this sort of this skill, this ability to, to pull people together? When did that st first start kind of popping up in your life? Oh, see, um, so I have a podcast too, What Say You, and we interviewed my mom not too long ago. And my mom said that I came out the womb uh, leading, basically. And my sister says that I uh, was bossing her around from when she was the baby. So I would say it's just a natural thing. But I can tell you that I got my hustle on. I knew that the hustle entrepreneur part was there probably when I was 11 or 12 and we lived in uh, Hawaii and I ended up organizing a show. So I knew that promotion and entertainment, I organized the show of all the kids in the neighborhood to do the hula and stuff. And we charged their parents to come. Okay, and and they and they paid, and then we split the money, right? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes, and so looking back, right in reflection, because I just I just uh, got into my mid sixties. I'll say it like that. It's hard for me to say the numbers these days, but it's coming. Uh, and so when I think back on it, and you're asking me this question, it's in me. And, and then it just develops and escalates. And now it's really on steroids. I'm having a blast making stuff up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And people are following you. Well, it, you're one of those people where the through line from who you were to who you are today, it's there, right? You've always been this person. And um, I'm wondering whether you were attracted to any kind of formal leadership roles as a kid. You know, were you running for office? Did, did teachers sort of seek you out to take on projects or to lead students in some way? Like how did this manifest in those early primary school age, you know, years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I can go back to high school. Um, I was president of the black student union. Uh, we called it the Afro club back then. And, uh, and, and we had good years. We figured out, you know, what our role was at that time and really about community building and crossing cultures and standing in our own power. You know, we were proud to be black, so we weren't trying to be white. And we were trying to help our white classmates because our school was very integrated, understand, you know, who we are and that the world revolves around everybody and not just whiteness. I mean, we had that back then, you know. Um, and then I went to college and I, I went to Washington State University in Pullman. And I'm on the books and the records there as being one of the founding members of uh, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated uh, on that uh, campus, which is a, a Black female sorority. We're about scholarship, sisterhood, and service, right? And that was back in the 80s. So I'm the first of uh, all kinds of stuff. The first, um, let's see, uh, I started the first Martin Luther King Jr. celebration in the city of Tacoma that turned out to be one of the largest indoor celebrations for Dr. King's life, right? The, I'm the first, firstborn, first. <laughs> do you think you were, um, did those opportunities just sort of fall in your lap? Did you seek them out? Like, did you say, oh, well, I know how to get this done. 
like how do you end up constantly at the front of that line taking taking the helm okay i would say because i'm clear about my purpose in life i've i've taken the time to do the work and and be still to say okay why am i on this earth and how am i called to serve and so by doing that i can be purposeful about my daily walk you and i both have the same 24 hours i got mine you got yours you don't have any more than i do okay so it's our choices how we choose to spend that time and some of us are getting real smart with technology that like you know what i can hire out my administrative work on the continent i can hire out in ghana or i can hire out in south africa because they're like 10 hours ahead so while i'm asleep they're doing this i get up okay i mean we're starting to i've been like this let me just say it. <laughs> i you take me all off on a tangent i be, i just think it up and and i make sure it's fun because I don't do anything anymore that's not fun. It may turn out to be challenging. I might have to deal with some stressful situations. But at the core of it, is it fun? Is it joyful? And and what I can say to people and what I'm studying in my, uh, I'm getting my PhD also. And uh, I'm looking at socialization and liberation. And when when you look at socialization, Robbie, we didn't have a choice in terms of who we were. We were born in this world. Our socialization began by who we were born to. And then from there, it gets reinforced. It's at some point that we have to liberate ourselves. And so when when you're liberated inside the core of who you are is joy. Yeah. To answer that question, I just come from that space will it bring me joy will it bring joy to others joy to the world that kind of centering yeah yeah it sounds like you have a like a screen or a litmus test for for what you say yes to and yes. then you wholeheartedly say yes to it yes even when yes. it's challenging exactly. it's not yes. it's not a can can i do this it's is this is this going to feed me is this going to is this is this a joy that i'm seeking is this going to provide that for the for the world yeah Okay, I, I'm gonna go back again a little bit to like 11, 12, 13 years old, right? Like, so you hear this kid, you're organizing your neighbors, kids, you're charging your neighbors' parents. It's awesome. I was very entrepreneurial as a kid. I love this story. What did you think your job or career was gonna be growing up at that point? You know, which, you know, we don't have a, a huge worldview, but what did you think life was gonna be for you? Yeah, I, was started saying early on that I was going to be um, a pediatrician. Okay. I mean that when people said, what are you going to do? I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to be a pediatrician. I said that for a long time. And then when being a pediatrician became a real thing, like you actually have to prepare to be one, <laughs> not just say it, but you gotta do some stuff. <laughs> then I figured out that stuff when I started taking the science classes. And I remember we had to dissect the cat. They brought the cat home. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I got sick to my stomach. I couldn't stand the formaldehyde smell or whatever that was. And it just became obvious that pediatrician wasn't going to work. <laughs> so. 
And so then <laughs> I go to college. <laughs> I'm laughing because I laugh at myself. I'm so tickled by this. I'm in college and been there for six years now, right? And my dad calls up and he's like, um, baby girl, you've been at that school long enough to have some kind of paperwork. So what, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm not going to pay for you after this anymore. So long story short, I went to school for six years to be, uh, to get a degree in general studies. <laughs> it was like, and he was very proud. <laughs> yeah, general <laughs> studies. What is that? And so I'm telling you, I carried this little cloud of shame for a while. This is real talk. Because it's like, who go, what, what is general studies for real? Because people are like, oh, I majored in sociology or I majored in psychology. You know, they had a discipline, but the, the general studies discipline wasn't quite developed at that time. And it was just an accumulation of credits. And what it has turned out to be, and I hope the listeners are encouraged by this, what a blessing that it turned out to be because I became a generalist. I mean, I've had uh, wonderful experiences in uh, materials management, like I've run a warehouse and distribution center. Uh, I've run the... um, the Equal Employment Opportunity System for the Department of the Navy and the city of Tacoma. I mean, like different things. And recently I found out that there's a name for people like us, like me. And I think it's you too, Robbie. I think it's you too. The name, our name, we are multipotentialites. Yeah. I also identify with multi-passionate. Yes. Feel right. Yes, I, I agree. And I and I also know that particularly in the world of entrepreneurship, uh, which I know is part of your world as well, there is this like, you know, y- you're supposed to get up early, which I'm not an early person. <laughs> and you're supposed to be like in one lane ever, like don't, don't distract yourself with anything else. And I, I can't help it. Like I have multiple things that I love doing and I have the ability to do. And so I have my my niche within each one. Yes. I'm not for everyone, but I am but I am not gonna like not do something because the potential is there, right? So I totally do get it. And I think there's a bunch of us that are like claiming these labels. But it also sounds like even early on, you you had a lot of different interests, uh, although clearly the path towards be the, I mean, I will say being a kid who says you want to be a pediatrician is an awe moment. Like, oh, that's like really cute. Yeah, that's what <laughs> So milk that for as long as you can. And then the cat showed up. Yeah. And you're like, eh, nope. Yeah. No, and you're right. It would be every time I said that, they'd be like, oh, that's so wonderful. That so <laughs> is so wonderful. That, you get that feeling and everyone loves you and it feels good. And so I just kept saying it. <laughs> but it must have been hard, though. You say, you know, you have this six year, six years and I'm a five year, you know, to get out too. And I think uh-huh. that m- m- many people are. And I think we all, again, live by this fallacy of four years and that you know what you want to do. Um, so how did you figure out a pathway forward? Because some people like have a, you know, either a family business or a family like career they follow or they, 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 I don't know, they want to be a lawyer. So there's a very clear you know, direction to go in. How did you know where to go after your six years of formal schooling? Child, I didn't know where to go. 
My mama told me to go to the unemployment office. That's what she told me. And go see Miss Janelle. That was her friend. And um, that's how it went back there. Baby, gone down to the unemployment office to see Miss Janelle. And this is like the day after, I mean, not the day after, Monday after I graduated, right? Go on down and see Miss Janelle. And so I did. And Miss Janelle, whom I've known growing up, you know, she's known me growing up. You know, back then they had the jobs on the board and they had the little slips and stuff and who they referred. So she gave me my little paper slip and referred me to General Electric. Do you remember that company? Sure, GE, yeah. Yeah, GE. They were doing some kind of something uh, in Tacoma at the time and referred me to the marketing department and I got the job, okay? So that's one thing. My very first Monday out of school, I got a job. Now, here's the real thing to discuss. How long did I keep the job, okay? So <laughs> that part. So I get this job. This is my first job. I mean, my first real job. And back then they had the time clock. You remember like a real um, punch cards, a yeah. punch card time clock. And so I'm supposed to come to work at eight o'clock. And so mine would be like 8.02, 8.01. Oh, one sometimes never past five, but in that range. And so I got fired because I didn't come to work at eight o'clock. Well, I mean, this is not taking into account black people time. Like you're, you're on oh time. You, you were there at eight Oh two. I mean, that's, that's perfectly Mommy, on time. Do you understand me? You, okay, I'm going to give you the uh, culturally literate badge, okay, that you understand this as a white person, yeah. that there is I, such a thing. I can't, like, and that, they're holding you to account, like, as if we all have the same clock, therefore we all yeah. have to show up at the oh, same time. Oh, my goodness. And probably some of your listeners are saying, what, what, there's black people time? But there, it, it is a flow. Hmm. The whole time concept is racist, right? And it's just, a, um, in this particular case, let me just say, <laughs> I told my dad I got fired and I'm whining and I'm like, daddy, they fired me because I'm black. And my dad said, no, baby, they fired you because you couldn't come to work on time. That's what they said, right? That's the rule. You knew it. And right then and there, the lesson that I learned, Robbie, was I will never have a job that I have to punch a time clock. Mm -hmm. Uh uh. No, not that I have to to change who I am. It's like look at this system. If this system values this, then I don't want to be a part of that system. Well, and there's probably a way in which they're reading into your lateness as as having meaning that you're not you're not meaning it to have, right? They're seeing it as insolence or unprofessional or yeah, what whatever, disrespectful or you know, 
not ready for a job, you know, I don't know, right? They're they're placing a lot of judgment on those few minutes. On that. Yeah, which tells you about the whole whole system that they're in. I totally agree. So how do you bounce back from that? Because the path that you ended up on, I mean, you're you know, when I was reading your intro, someone actually wrote in the comments, very impressive. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I will tell you, like, you're very impressive. So no one would think these these beginnings you're describing sound uh, not like you were, you know, handed anything. And uh, the reason you are where you are today was was just assumed it was going to happen. How did you get on this particular pathway that led you to to taking on these opportunities, these leadership roles, being respected for, for who you are? Okay, that's a big question. So um, let me let me just put it in context. I have to remind um, listeners that I'm a black woman. Okay, and that is important to say out loud because being a black woman working in predominantly white spaces my entire career um, has been traumatizing. I'm going to say it's a fight every day, a fight every day. And even when you're at the top, you know, even when you're running things, you know, in charge of stuff. It's if you got to watch your back all the time. And so then you get tired. And when I was talking about that socialization and liberation, I liberated myself from that stress. And I even say to it as referred to it in the context of a plantation. Okay. So I've liberated myself from the plantation mentality and system you know, where someone is controlling your destiny. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to minimize the, the actual plantation uh, sufferings that happen. Please, no, not at all. But I'm looking at it again as a system of where I was working. Um, I had to free myself. And so when you said, how do I get on this path? I made a conscious statement and it was, Lord, I don't know what I want to do, but I definitely know what I don't want to do, okay? And please, you know, will you order my steps in the way forward that it needs to go? And once I said that out loud, I went into my supervisor's office. I worked for the state at the time and I asked to be laid off, you know, not to quit, there's no need for us to struggle. I mean, you obviously don't want me there and I don't want to be here. So like, let's make a deal. <laughs> you know, my salary is as such that it would make a nice savings for your bottom line. So let's negotiate. So anyway, I negotiated myself right on out of there and I have, have not looked back. And how many years ago is that? Just to give us a time frame. That was 1997, 98. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, you know, 25 years ago and you didn't know what was next in the path, but you knew you were not on the path you wanted to be on and you yeah. needed to release yourself from the current circumstances to be able to find new ones. 
for them to come. I mean, if if your cup is full, there's no room. Yeah. What what were the ways you explored? Did your network help you? Did you like who'd you lean into in that moment to to, to start to figure that out? Oh, it was very easy. Um, my girlfriend uh, Janet at the time was. Uh, she received her blessing to get an appointment as an executive with McDonald's South Africa. And so she invited me over to South Africa to work um, on the grand opening of the first McDonald's restaurant in South Africa. I mean, like once I was free, I'm available, right? So she invited me over there and um, I worked on the grand opening of the first McDonald's uh, and the second and third, you know? Um, and and it was there that uh, I started to meet people because, you know, it was such a big deal. I mean, it was a CNN story and all of that. I got to be behind the scenes. I still have footage. I mean, I can share my firsthand, first source knowledge. The first people in line for the McDonald's in South Africa were missionary, American missionaries. <laughs> but yeah, I, I um, once she invited me over there and I started seeing and, and I the friends that I was meeting and, and you've known me long enough to know Robbie that I don't meet strangers. So I was saying, I wanna go home with you, you know, cause they were from Swaziland, the country next door. I was like, I want to go. I want to go with you. I want to go with you. So I started visiting um, different communities and um, yeah. And so now those same friends of mine that that had kids that were babies, now their kids have kids. And so it really is, a, um, yeah, it's been an ordained, I'm gonna just have to say it like that, ordained, organic, uh, following my interests wherever the path has led me. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm pretty yeah, I, I mean, it, it seemed like you, like you said, you, you closed a door and sought out what came next and getting to work with someone who knew you and you were able to use these skills you had in, in service of this amazing project. I'm also curious, given how race has been such a big part of the work you're doing, how spending time not just visiting, but living in another country and how they relate to race influenced how you saw America. Because when you're in it, it's a little harder to name, but when you step out of it, you now see it differently, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah no, you, you're spot on with that. Let's see. Um, well, it depends on where you are, okay? Now, South Africa, seriously, if I just blindfolded you, if you hadn't been there and just blindfolded you and plopped you in Cape Town, you know, in the middle of Cape Town, you would think you were in San Diego somewhere. Or if I dropped you in Santon or, you know, in Johannesburg, you think you were somewhere on the East Coast. I mean, it's just that developed. So when I'm in South Africa, my perspective is still on guard because they have uh, apartheid and, and their whole history there. So it's still on guard. But like when I'm in, uh, and the same goes for Namibia, you know, Namibia uh, next door to South Africa, they got a lot of um, German people and, you know, it's a lot of white people 
in both of those places. But then when I go to to Ghana, you know, or to Kenya or to Malawi, you know, where the uh, the racial or or the um, I would say even just looking at someone the same color as you seeing black people all day, every day in my psyche, it's a whole different feeling. It doesn't, I mean, and, and it doesn't, it's not associated with trauma of any kind. And I think the most uh, telling example that I can give is most recently I spent four weeks in Ghana and the whole time I'm present, like, why am I so peaceful? This is what peace looks like. Why? It's like, oh, did I see any white people today? You know, I had to think about it. And then it was like, um, you know, did I? I don't think I did. And so making the connections to this just not trauma associated with existing you know, it's interesting because I watched your documentary, Peace Queen, which I'll put a link in the show notes about um, you You get this honor, you get invited to Norway um, to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. And I love that you said, well, I'm going to go to Norway, which is like the land of white people. And I'm going to seek out black people. And specifically, you sought out young black men to talk to. Yes. And I thought that was a fascinating part where they their their relationship to race and culture was they didn't I, even gonna, like they were trying to say I'm use uh, word I think the gun <laughs> is in the car. Foreign. I mean did you see how they yeah they weren't even quite sure and and as this was going down I'm like whoa these black men are talking about they think the gun is in the car. I mean like <laughs> Yeah that they, they're talking about Partly the the reason they feel safe around the police is because good relations, you know, cultural, but but also they're not armed all the time. And they think there's a gun in the car, maybe if necessary, but no one gets shot at. And, you know, and just like you were saying how just that feeling of of not being uh, on guard and, and, you know, just feeling at peace. And here is a group of black guys in a very white country who also are finding that. So it's very interesting how. There is a problem that we've created here in the States, uh, how we've approached it and also weaponized, I mean, weaponized hate has yes. been really yes. um, part of the conversation. Y- you you are a first at things. You you got recognized for this amazing honor because of the work you do. I mean, you mentioned the um, uh, MLK uh, breakfast that you took on and led for all this time. And you're great at just bringing people together. And you and I met, I want to give you a moment to talk about the People's Gathering. I think it's incredibly unique. And as you know, I'm actually opening my book, uh, my new book, Break Out of Boredom, uh, Low Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events, talking about your Zoom event, because I think it illustrates what's possible and how you can create these transformative, inclusive, and engaging online experiences. So it didn't start out as as a virtual program. So I'm really curious about how you originally conceived of it? What what was the purpose of it? And how did it start to morph as you and everyone in the world had to suddenly take it online? Wow. Yes, the People's Gathering was born really out of my consistent interaction with white people that say that they don't know what to do. 
right? They don't, they know that racist, systemic racism exists. They know that they're witnessing uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the killing of unarmed, armed black men and women. And I mean, it's real and there's an awakening, but what do I do? How do I participate in um, anti-racist work? And so for, for me being in this lane of equity and inclusion for so long, it's all about education. You gotta um, really be able to, to step in and be vulnerable, open your mind and start to learn about um, this made up system called racism. You gotta, and, and not be, not whisper about it, Robbie. You know how when we start to talk about racism, we whisper. No, we have to like really be confident and talk about it. So I wanted to create a space that allowed for that to happen and to use the the system that was that created it all, right? The census. The the US census. Think about it. The United States census is when we have to report our race. And think about when you don't fill out your census form, you know, good and well, they will send somebody to your house. They will keep knocking on your door, sending you mail, hunting you down to fill out that form and put yourself in a box. So I thought, hey, let's use this same box to create some understanding and some healing. And so when we gather as people, we ask that you gather in the room of the box that you check. We have a box, we have a room for every box on the census form. And it is from there that we begin to unpack our understandings, misunderstandings, dysfunctions, you know, all of that around what we know race and racism to be, how it impacts us where our minds are, you know, our mindset, are we in denial about it? Are we polarized about it? I mean, this politics and the way that um, race is at the center of it to promote hate is just mind boggling to me, but people have to buy into it. So that means it's in their heart or their mind somewhere or somehow. Um, yeah, so this conference, the People's Gathering gives us a chance to be raw and real. And I'm like the referee. So I host it. Um, but I'm also like the referee. I'll blow my whistle on, you know, don't bring that whiteness and fragility in here today. I'm sorry. It's not allowed. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love it. Cause as a, as a, you know, zoom producer, uh, and a virtual event design consultants, this is, uh, you sought me out. You found my work yeah. somehow. You stumbled across me on, on my website. You did some Googling. I, I'm so grateful that my my work is out there in such a way that that was possible um, and that it, it was such a good match because I feel really called to supporting mission-driven work and what you're doing and getting to be behind the scenes, doing the technical stuff, supporting the facilitators, you know, helping them get ready to hold the space that we're doing. Uh, it's great and it, it is transformative. It, it is a conversation that's not an easy conversation. It's not necessarily a safe space, right? It's, it's no, a it's difficult place, space for some. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we do not promise safe. You yeah, know, that's a that's a safe for whom that's something white people need. Okay? Yeah, so yeah, just this is what the growth is there. 
supportive space is what we offer and and we make sure that it's there you can you can say what you need to say fall down and, and get up right it, it is a space for you to learn how many people did you have coming when you did this in person um we had the we were limited to 250 in person and how many did you have this is twice so a now, year yeah we're over 500 now and we went virtually because of the pandemic that that forced us but we had our emergency convening around george floyd's murder and then we have um we've moved forward since then virtually because now we are attracting people from all over the U.S. and even uh, countries in Africa. We've had folks dial in from Ghana and South Africa. So, um, but let me say this about you to your uh, listeners. Now, Robbie, you have been the one to help us take our our uh, Zoom game to the next level. Okay, we we were doing it, and and it was fine. It was mechanical. Okay, I would say it was more mechanical and transactional, if I could describe it like that. You know, cut here, cut here. Here's this person. Here's this person. And since, and since uh, you've come in our mix, I would say that you've added the relational part. So people are that warmth is coming through, and they can only do that through the skill of an excellent producer. So I want to, um, I just want to honor you for, um, you know, being that. Because who even knew there was such a job as a Zoom producer? I and, um, <laughs> and now you, you not only is there this, but now you're the consultant to the stars of Zoom producers. And you're the best. Oh, thank you. I, that's so kind of you. Because it's, it's so amazing to sort of see what you're doing and supporting it. Um, and getting to work with these amazing people that you've attracted. And we'll put a link in the show notes to this uh, event uh, because I think people are going to be interested to learn more about it. And because it is online, people don't have to be in your locale to, to participate. So that's kind of exciting. And you do host it twice a year. So we'll, we'll make sure there's some information. Um, we're getting to the end here. And I just want to make sure I ask you a question about networking specifically because you sound like a person who has this amazing network. I mean, the the work you've had has been varied and it's been all levels and it's been in so many different countries. And so how do you think about nurturing? I mean, you've got the inner circle of people that you're not going to lose touch with, but then you've got that sort of second and third layer or tier out the people that you, I don't know, see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you have no reason to right now, but you like each other. Like that's sort of the base here. You like each other. How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections? Is there any habits, philosophies, practices for sort of staying in touch with your network? Mm. You know, I'm going to just be transparent with that. I could do better in that area. I really could of, of me staying in touch with them. Okay. They, they insist on, stayed in touch with me, right? And so the network has, the network becomes that because of the initiative of, of, of my babies. You know, they'll decide if they want to be with me or not. And when they call, of course, I answer. Um, but that, you know, I'm thinking that that's a beautiful question that you're answering me that I'm asking me that I need to reflect on because I could do better 
initiating, you know, so it, the relationship is definitely has to be two way. So um, thank you for that call to consciousness. My pleasure. My pleasure. A lot of times people re-listen to these shows after being a guest and they, they take notes. <laughs> they go, oh yeah, that too, that too. Um, I mean, I think one of your gifts is that you're an amazing convener and a host. And I uh, didn't realize myself that that was such a superpower until I met um, a local politician who I was friends with. And he said, the thing about being a politician is that you can, you can convene people and they'll show up because you, you said there's a meeting and everyone shows up to the meeting. And I said, oh, but I already do that. Oh, so I don't have to run for office. <laughs> like, That's oh, it. good. I didn't really want to get into all that. I like to bring people together part. So I could imagine that that's something you might be doing already and not necessarily thinking hard about it because it's just sort of who you are. Like, do you, do you, I don't know. I, I almost can imagine you having a salon at your home. You're like, are you the kind of person who brings people together for good conversation and good community building? And yeah, if you could see outside, there's a um, full blown lake out there. So I do bring people together. We come and sit on the porch and watch the ducks and, and talk and, you know, and people that have big networks that then we collaborate on projects. That's the only way that I'm able to, to do what I do and have the impact that I have is because of the trust um, of others and the networks that they share with me. Mm -hmm. So again, it, it just becomes an individual thing. Like how true are you to self and are you gonna just be about it? Yeah. So I have a final question. It's my favorite question uh, to end with, which is, you know, I'm so thrilled. We're going to stay in touch. So a year from now, I'm going to be reminding you as we're getting ready for the next, um, ne the first uh, people's gathering of next year, I'll say, hey, it was, it's been a year since we did that interview. And I'm going to ask you a year from now, hey, what are you celebrating from the past year? So what are you going to be celebrating a year from now? What are you most looking forward to? I am most looking forward to welcoming my first shipment of chilies from Ghana, right? I'm starting a chili farm in Ghana and I'm going to export them to the United States. And I want to be able to tell you that my chilies have made it in and the whole containers are sold. That's what I want to be able to tell you. I don't know any, I love this. I don't know anyone else who has that on their list of to do. <laughs> for the next year. And I cannot yes. wait to hear how that turns out and to celebrate the results with you. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, that's, I, I'm, I don't usually say the word speechless. I don't know this has ever happened to me, but I wasn't sure what to say in response to that. <laughs> you're, you're got farmers in Ghana who are growing yes. chilies for you, which you are hoping to have pre-sold on the US market. I need y'all to buy these chili peppers. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, that's fantastic. How can people find you and follow your work? I have an Instagram. I'm at Miss Melanie. That's that's my Instagram. And then Facebook is um, Melanie Denise Cunningham. And then uh, LinkedIn. I'm there. Okay. We'll put all those links as well as the ones I mentioned earlier in the show in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Millie, thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> it's been amazing. Thank you, Robbie. God bless you. I'm going to say Wakanda forever. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Melanie. What is your key takeaway? 
something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 325. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about that journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.